Awesome. Uh, everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We have made it to episode 54. We are continuing to talk about robots. And we have Shane Dietrich of House of, uh, excuse me, of House of Design on the show today. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yep. you so much for joining us, Shane. Uh, the first question that we always ask our guests is, obviously, me and Dave have gone through your profile and understand your background, but could you give us maybe a picture of how you got started? I would say even starting with your educational background and maybe some of those early jobs, and how did you get into a house of design? Sure. Yeah. So, um, look, I think my background is a little bit different. I, uh, you know, right out of high school, I went and got my airframe and power plant mechanics license. So I, I wanted to go into that field and uh, I got done with that and decided, yeah, that wasn't for me. So okay. uh, leaving, a, leaving a wrench in an airplane and uh, forgetting to tighten down something or whatever it might be, like that, too much risk. So, which is kind of ironic because as we move forward, like my career has been nothing but risk. So, um, but after that, you know, went to school, got my electrical engineering degree from Colorado School of Mines. Um, after I graduated from there, I went to work for Boeing Rocketdyne out in Canoga Park, California, and uh, worked on the International Space Station. Like, wow. So still yeah, stayed like, in the, I guess, the flight industry and worked for yeah, the same yeah, space. Yeah. Interesting. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I went into that and nothing against, uh, against that industry or that company, but I worked on this little tiny transformer for eight months and I felt like I did nothing for that company. Like great, you know, international space station. Wow. This is it. This is fantastic. And boy, just didn't feel like I contributed all that much to it. I did, but not, not as much as I wanted to. So, um, you know, kind of moving on from there, I went to work in the, in the nuclear industry. So non-destructive assay. So we assayed, uh, weapons grade plutonium and uranium waste and we did a tomographic gamma scanner so we actually assayed 55 gallon drums and uh, determined the quantity of radioactive waste inside these waste drums so wow. okay. um, and then after that that's when I got into automation and boy that's when that's when things you know really got to be fun for me so Went to work for a systems integration company here in Boise, and um, they decided they wanted to get into robotics. And so that's that was kind of my pathway into robotics, and um, did lots of uh, lots of different robotic applications. Um, I was programming robots, so in deep into the ABB Rapid uh, programming language, did a ton of Pickmaster stuff, did a did a whole bunch of just, you know, general application stuff. Um, Shane, did you seek out that position? I'm curious, you know, because you mentioned that transition, right? Going from the nuclear company yeah, into yep. automation. Is that something that you purposefully looked for or was it just a different job that kind of came your way? What was, and I guess, what was the transition at the time? What was your, I would say, like initial experience or thoughts, if you could recall? Yeah, it was one of those that I think some of us, some of us have experienced my wife and I, we had our first child and we were just about ready to have our second child. And we were living in Denver in the Denver proper area. And we decided that we, we wanted to move and be in a smaller kind of community. So that's when we moved up to Boise. And before we moved up here, I was looking for jobs and this one just happened to pop up. You know, it was, uh, it was just by chance to be honest with you, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a deliberate, like, this is absolutely what I want to do. I want to go program PLCs. Like, absolutely not. Like no, nothing against you, Vlad, but uh, <laughs> I hate PLCs. I, ladder logic, ladder logic is the worst language ever for me personally. So for me, but, but that's, that's just how it went. We found a great job, uh, worked for that company. Um, which was interesting because it was, it was a controls, mainly a controls integration company and they moved into robotics and uh, it just didn't work out, meaning the company failed. And when it, when it failed, it was bought by, um, by JLS. Um, and uh, from there, 
you know, worked in that industry for quite a while. And, and after that, I feel like I skipped, you know, around a lot, but really it felt like years and years, but, but what happened after JLS is I went to work for a company called Transform Solar, and it was a startup between Micron and Origin Energy in Australia. And I ran the automation development group and the reliability group for that company. And when they decided to shut down the operations here in, in Idaho, um, that's when we decided I took the automation group and they came with me and we started House of Design. So that's how, that's how House of Design became a company. Kind of an interesting story behind that. My dad had a company called House of Design in Colorado, and we did a bunch of street rods and customs mm-hmm. and building cars. And that was his name. And when I got to Idaho, House of Design was available. And I, I got that name. And uh, when we started, started our business, we went through and uh, the bank wanted a company that had been in business for, you know, established for a little while. So luckily House of Design was and off we went. So. What was the initial, I guess, I'm really curious to learn about maybe like the first six months to a year when you just started the company. Obviously, you said there was maybe a fallout from the previous venture that you were part of. And so you and a couple of teammates got together and started this new company. Were you entirely focused on robotics at the beginning? Did yeah. you have other thoughts on automation? Like what was, I would say, like going through uh, like your mind and maybe your conversations with these uh, colleagues at the time? Oh, it was a hundred percent robotic automation. Hundred percent. We knew what we wanted to do. Uh, we had the skill sets with the ABB uh, Robot Studio software, which is phenomenal for simulations and stuff. Um, so that's what we wanted to do. So when we started the business, we um, that's that's that was our driving focus. Now, let me tell you, starting a business with you know two other guys. And, um, yeah, scary as all get out, right? Like healthcare, uh, where are we getting our first job? Where are we setting up shop? You know, all those questions, super scary. Um, I'm, I'm one that I, I don't know. I, I think I mitigate risk pretty well and it doesn't bother me too much. Um, other people are different ways, but that's me. But what we found, and I just, I have to put a plug out there, okay? So the Small Business Development Center, SBDC, anybody out there that is starting a business, go seek them out. Like, that's how we started. We started in a little, I don't know what it was, a 250 square foot office. And we slowly grew in that that space to where we took over the complete industrial side of that uh, facility. But they... You know, we didn't have to clean toilets. We didn't have to find, you know, copy machines. We didn't have to go and find printers and internet connections and all this stuff. We just moved in. And they helped us business-wise. Like, in the beginning, I didn't know what a P&L and balance sheet was. I had no idea. I never went and got my MBA. I had, I had no clue. And so they helped guide us along. So that was, I just have to put a plug out there for them. Like, that was very, very helpful for us. Very I'm helpful. curious, I guess, how do they structure or how do those programs work? It's uh, They provide some kind of funding and then classes or a mentor, like all of the above. What's the, What does that look like? Yeah, no. It, it, so, you know, they don't pl- provide any funding for the businesses at the center. But what they do is they provide a very, very, very cheap rent that includes all of the things that you need to start a business. Like I said, like internet, phones, you know, copy machines, bathrooms, you know, all this stuff that think about going out to, you know, just a, I don't know, just, just an office building and trying to get a, an office. Right. And you got to pay a big rent for that. This was very, very cheap. And then what came with that for free was all the business coaching. So, which was very, very useful. Um, the people that helped us, uh, John Glaren was phenomenal for us so yeah yep and so fast forwarding to i would say today uh house of design is a much bigger company right so from those (laughs) humble beginnings could you paint us a i would say a more or a bigger picture of what it is today what do you guys do Um, and again we'll get into the specifics in a moment but just how is the company doing today 
Yeah, I know that. So the company today, I think it's over 130 employees. Wow. Uh, we're moving into a uh, hundred over a hundred thousand square foot uh, facility that it was an old uh, Macy's building. Macy's, yep. And so we're moving into that. We're building another 120,000 square foot facility. So, um, you know, we'll have over 200,000 square feet of, of space. Um, we do plan to grow the company immensely from where it is today. So, um, yeah, super excited for that. So that road, boy, let me tell you, that road sure seemed to go quick right there, didn't it? I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm sure we could have a, you know, a three-hour conversation just on that and we could... It was hell. It was yeah. hell. Let me tell you. It was, it, you yeah. know, it was very, very difficult and uh, worth it. Every every step of the way, our employees, phenomenal, like um, just great people that we that we had working with us. Um, business partner, Ryan Oakleberry, you know, fantastic. I mean, we're just, we did, we did things very well. Not always the right way all the time, but uh, we definitely did things. Um, we did well. So, if you could give us some takeaways, I guess, because I'm I'm curious myself because I think I'm at the very early stages of that journey, and you know, if uh, again, if you have some watchouts or maybe some learning points, is it more on the financial side, on the people side, on the technology side? I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that transformation. Oh man, I could I could give you a ton. One of the biggest ones is uh, communication. Uh, know how to communicate and not only communicate with uh, customers and vendors and that sort of thing, but communicate with uh, business partners and employees. Um, I never believed in it, but personality assessments. Okay. So that, so the an interesting thing that we did at House of Design, and this came from the SBDC, is that we did a DISC assessment. So Ryan and I both, when we very first started, we did a disc assessment and, um, you know, at the beginning, I think Ryan would agree with me. Uh, we did not see eye to eye, uh, on the business at all. And, um, you know, it was, uh, once we did the disc assessment, we actually learned like, you know, Ryan is a very, very high C. So very, very detail oriented, very like lots of you know, investigation, lots of looking at things, wants to know a lot of details. I'm a high D. Like, so a great example is, you know, I would write Ryan a two sentence email and he would say, what the hell is this? And he would write me a six paragraph email and I'd go, I'm done with that after the second sentence. Right. So once like, once you like, oh, Ryan just wants more detail. Perfect. Here, Ryan, I can I can give you more detail. And he would be like, I don't need to give Shane all the history of how we got from there to here, but here's where we're at. And this is what we're going to go do. So, you know, communication, let me let me tell you, that is a huge thing in business. How do you communicate? And how do you so you do these assessments, I guess, with uh, a lot of your employees? And I guess for those who are maybe listening and aren't familiar with that model, and I think I've I've heard of it mentioned as the four colors, right? You have like the red, green, blue, yellow yep, types. That's it. But could you give that's us a, a bit more, I guess, of a couple of sentences of what that, uh, I would say like test entails, uh, just so that the viewers maybe know a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, it just, it's a way to be able to, you know, evaluate who you are. And um, what we did is it was colors, Vlad. It was red, yellow, green, and blue. And it was for D, I, S, and C. And we actually had each employee have a stack of Legos on their desk. And so if they were a low D, they had a low red. And so when you walked up to the desk, like I could immediately look at somebody and in a way you could say it's manipulation, but it's not. This is about how you communicate with somebody. If they were a high S and a, you know, a high I, I'd be like, hey, how was your weekend? What'd you do? Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah, you know, whatever. I did the same or this is what I did. Hey, do you think you could go get this for me? Right? If it was a high D, it's like, hey, could you go get this for me? Like, and it's just a way that you understand that individual. Like, that's that's just who we are. And like, if you read through, like, as you're going through the DISC assessment, it gives you a few paragraphs. 
And it's like, yep, that's me. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah. That's totally me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Boy, that sucks. That's really me. Oh my gosh. I hate that about myself. Yep. That's me. You know, so it's good. It's good. And so again, going back to, to the company today, are you guys again, only focused on robotics are you providing different services you're doing probably custom integrations i would assume too for different clients but could you paint us maybe a picture on the technology service and product side yeah no thanks for asking so house of design 100 was a robotic system integration company one-offs you know custom never been done before systems for a fixed price by the way, that's a crazy business model. Like, yeah. like if I have to say it, that's a dumb business model. Like that's really, really, really hard. So everybody out there that's doing that, hats off to you, man. I've, I lived that world. Wow. I can't believe we do that, but that's what we did. And we loved it. Uh, lots of, you know, engineers love that stuff. We love to change. We love to create and do different things. House of Design now has transitioned into a product-based company. So we have, found, we have found some robotic systems that we did um, that we found uh, the golden egg. We found the repeat build type of system. So we have our roof truss system, our floor truss system. We have a panelized wall and floor and ceiling system. Um, so we're kind of transition, you know, transitioning out of the, you know, custom automation into a product. And uh, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. So. So how did you guys do that? So how did you guys do that, Shana? I know some people that have come to that intentionally of a design build of everything custom, like the risk is so high. It's a crazy oh, business to be in. Absolutely. We need to move. But, but I've also known some people who have like accidentally stumbled on, Hey, I could do this same thing for, you know, 50 companies. So how did you guys get to the point? Of yeah, we, repeat we, bills? yeah, we 100% stumbled upon it. So meaning okay. that we, uh, 2018, I went and, uh, quoted a couple of jobs for a large startup company. Um, they wanted to change the world and hats off to them. Like they, they tried and I think their upper management did a great job on trying because yeah. they went out there to try to try to change the world. And as startups come and go, they, they, they went, they didn't succeed. And, but what they did succeed in is they were able to um, help us create a couple of systems that we believe will change uh, the offsite construction industry. So that, that was one company. And then another company, Autoval, um, you know, Rick Murdoch and, and Curtis Fletcher, they came to us and Caleb Roop, they came to us and wanted us to uh, help them automate a complete modular manufacturing facility. And wow. so we did that. They, they definitely, you know, had the vision behind it, especially Rick did a fantastic job of guiding us. It was super painful, still is. Um, but I can tell you, you know, we have over 50 robots in a modular manufacturing center pumping, pumping walls, floors, and ceilings out of the building with all automation. So um, super, super proud of that, of that job. So anyway, so back to the main question, how did we get there? We stumbled into it. Now, now, are you always looking for that golden egg? I think you talk to any system, robotic system integration company or integration company out there. You're always looking for the golden egg. You always want to repeat build. That's, mm -hmm. that's where we make good margins, right? So, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, Dave, do you have a follow-up? I was going to ask a question. I, I, I have, I I have lots of questions. But I, like the look on your face was, I have such a good question. So you, you go ahead, live. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess like I'm, I'm still curious, you know, on the productizing side or finding that like single build is the challenge. Obviously, like once you found the customer, you have to maintain probably some level of standardization, like quality, like what mm. I would say, like challenges come in at that point that are different than one off builds, because I think. Oh, it's my gosh. Yeah. Gosh. Great question. Like, think about it. So we're going to build a robotic system for, you know, XYZ company. 
you know, in XYZ company, they want all Alan Bradley and they want all, you know, they have their list of uh, preferred vendors that they want us to use. Well, we would always try to stick to our preferred vendors, which would be ABB. Like we've never integrated any other robot than ABB, but, you know, and uh, so, so you kind of bounce around as a system integrator, trying to ebb and flow in between these, you know, these customers on custom systems, right? And you got to be flexible on that because some want something different than somebody else. When you go to standardization, well, mm-hmm. boy, that, that's a different world because now in one way, it's a good thing because you can kind of dictate like, what are we going to use? Well, we are going to go and we pick BNR as our mm-hmm. PLC platform. And it's just because ABB bought BNR and we think that that synergy is a really good synergy there. Um, so, you know, we, we standardized on BNR. Great. So now we have BNR, but now you mm-hmm. got to standardize everything, right? And you think a repeat build is just a repeat build? It's not. It's not. I mean, you know, you got always got design iterations and now you got, you know, process improvements and, you know, manufacturing. You want to decrease manufacturing costs and you can because you're building more than one. Um, so, yeah. So, Vlad, does that is that kind of where you're going or? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, I always kind of had that idea that it would be all like in the details, but it, it's interesting to hear, you know, again, because in my mind, you have to be flexible, flexible enough with uh, your, I would say, suppliers, but also vendors. But at the same time, you have to maintain standards. So I, I don't know, it's, I guess, not having been maybe in that situation, it would be difficult to picture what truly goes into it but i can only imagine how again there's like a fine line or like a gray area between um again what you choose to change or choose to like be very rigid on so it's it's very interesting yeah and and look uh for house of design uh not all of it but a lot of it came back to software and like true software like we had well five to ten software engineers on staff true software engineers. So we were developing, you know, software applications that fed into the automation. And that's a, that's a huge part of what enabled us to do. Um, I mean, think of a roof truss. I think everybody has seen a roof truss. Well, I can tell you that spec homes have, you know, roof truss packages, but roof trusses are snowflakes. Like they're all different. So somebody designs a house, like those roof trusses have never been designed before. So there's, you know, the component industry out there that builds roof trusses. Well, we had a design software that took the design, deconstructed it, sequenced it, and then put it into a format for the automation. So anyway, that's the software engineering side of the business. But, um, but think about like right now, a huge deal for us is supply chain. And I think everybody, as soon as I say that out there, everybody's like, oh my gosh, yeah, supply chain. Well, gosh, we're being told, you know, 26 weeks for certain components. And oh, by the way, we don't know when we're going to get you the components. Like that's tough, right? Especially when you standardize to it. So what does that mean from like a practical standpoint? Does that mean you're looking outside of ABB, BNR, or is that other components? I'm I'm just curious again, what uh, impact does that drive? Yeah, I, you know, our preference for sure is not to look outside and to work with our vendors to be able to, you know, make sure that we can, you know, do blanket POs um, mm-hmm. for big purchases up going up front. But obviously, you got to de-risk the business too, and and the team is actively looking at other options if our current vendors can't supply us, you know, the equipment we need. So, and Shane, last, I'll go ahead, Dave. Had a question? I was. I- I was going to say, similar to Vlad's question, Shane, how has House of Design changed? So when you guys started, it was three of you. You were growing rapidly, but you were doing all these custom builds. How has the organization changed when you go from everything's one-off, everything's high risk, to we've decided to build a bunch of products, and now we need to transition into a company that builds a bunch of products in volume? Um. Great question. So for us, it was scalability. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we bootstrapped 
house a design from the very beginning. So there was $6,000 invested into the company. And we knew that when we, uh, and, and that was all the way through, like no external investment, no other investors, nothing. It was just mm -hmm. us. And, um, you know, we got to a point that we had these products and we knew we had a scale and we had a scale mm -hmm. fast. Uh, we didn't have the capital at the time to be able to do it. So we went out and looked for a, for a partner out there. And, and in September, we closed a transaction with uh, TH Lee, Thomas H. Lee. And they brought, you know, resources and cash and everything else that we needed to scale. But, but that's one of the things that I think people um, overlook is that when you go from project to product, yes. products become very intense cash outlays to be able to get manufacturing lines set up, to get inventory, to get to get to a stage that you're able to rinse and repeat. Absolutely. I, I would say uh, to, to kind of to, to Shane's point, I think it's almost, I don't know, maybe ironic Shane, right? Like you guys built robotic cells that go in manufacturing companies. And now you guys have to build a manufacturing company to manufacture robotic cells. I, I think there's some poetic irony in there. <laughs> there and, is, Dave. Yeah. And, and all manufacturing companies, they're very expensive and time-consuming to set up. And that's why you guys need a quarter of a million square feet is because you, you need the footprint in order to, to build those cells. So I think before I let Vlad get back to his question, I think it'll be very interesting over the next six months to five years to watch as you guys grow and scale the, the manufacturing of those cells and to see if you can continue that huge upward trajectory that you currently have. Yeah. Yep. No, my, I guess my comments, my comment was going to be similar to what uh, Dave has mentioned. I was just, again, from my conversations with a couple of my own mentors and looking to transition at one point, obviously, again, understanding also that product is very important. They pretty much told me that, that that's a very difficult route because I think even the business model is fairly different, right? On one side, when you're doing oh. systems integration, you're almost, you have consultants working for you, right? Versus when you're productizing, then you have, you know, full time on stuff like engineering teams. Again, you have to do production. So it's, it, I think it's very interesting. Again, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we can spend like three hours going into that conversation and I, I have a lot of different questions on that. But uh, Shane, again, if maybe if you want to talk us through, so last year, right, there's been some changes in the company. Um, yep. Again, I'm curious with obviously as much info as you can share, like what, um, what changed and like what drove maybe that change? Yeah, so I alluded to it before. It was uh, the realization that we're going to a product-based company. We needed uh, to scale super fast and... Uh, and the, one of the only ways to do that, we thought, was uh, bringing in a partner. And when I say bringing in a partner, we found, you know, just going through that process, I'll just, you know, without giving any details to it, phenomenal. Like, oh my gosh, um, great learning experience, uh, just understanding how the whole transactional business uh, and, uh, you know, group or field, I guess, is like, oh my gosh, like going and finding a, a company that will take you to market, that will go out there, get us, you know, get your, get your pitch deck ready, present it to people. And, and then you kind of wait and see, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, how does, are, are we attractive? Does anybody think that we have a good business model? We think we do. And uh, the feedback was phenomenal for us. Like it, it, it was unbelievable. And uh, right from the get-go, Thomas H. Lee, they, they, they were with us and, and showed immense interest into it. So, so just going down, that, going down that path, it was just a great learning experience to go through a transaction. Um, oh gosh, I, you know, I could talk all kinds of things about it, but I don't want to, I don't want to, divulge any information but just just the experience of going through it was uh phenomenal uh the team my gosh our team i gotta tell you so impressed with them um everybody on our team that helped us through it crazy 
Yeah. Shane, I'd want to maybe like, you know, flip the table and ask, you know, how do you assess potential investors, right? So I think I have a decent understanding of how they would assess you, how they would go through the financials and kind of understand like where you're trying to go. But how do you pick? Because again, ultimately, it's a two-way partnership, right? To mm. some degree. So how do you assess? Um, and again, it, taking it out of context, maybe for House of Design, but a company that's growing, that again, is looking to bring in an investor that will propel the, I would say the growth, how do they assess a potential investor? Yeah. Whoever brings the biggest check, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what everybody wants. I mean, that's what everybody wants. But, uh, you know, in all seriousness, it was very, very important to us that we, um, we found a partner that would come in and be with us to scale it. Like that was, that is the, the key. We, we didn't do this because we wanted to sell and be, and to go live on the beaches in Mexico. Like that wasn't, that wasn't the reason why. The reason why is because we knew we had an organization. We knew this organization needed to scale and we needed to scale super fast. So we needed to find the right partner to do that. But we also wanted to find the right partner that wasn't going to, um, it was going to be somebody that kept our culture. So we felt like we had, we had absolutely established a great culture at House of Design. Uh, people loved working there and, uh, and, and look, still do. And, and we wanted to maintain that. Um, so, you know, you always hear the scary stories of somebody selling their company and the PE firm or VC, whoever comes in and cuts everybody out and yep. brings in their own management team and, and runs the company from there that that's not how this has worked been super impressed with our partners and um and yeah so so vlad i think i think that those are the two biggest things right there so i guess to bring back your previous point communication i guess would be key right like really understanding what they're in for because again as you said and in my experience it's been not only maybe replacing the people but also mismanaging uh, a company and then just pr- probably driving it into the ground at some point because they don't fully understand, um, again, either the industry, the customers. And so it, it becomes difficult for them to just walk in and take over. So well, to speak. But- well, it does. And so that partnership is, it wasn't, we didn't need to sell because our management wasn't strong. Our organization wasn't strong. We had all the right people, all the right tools. We just needed money. And we needed some resources that could actually go out and help us help us scale. And that's what a, that's what a PE does. I mean, that's, that's who they are and it's been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Shane, if we want to transition a little bit more on the tech side, so I'm curious, uh, and I mentioned this off stream, but we had a conversation with David Nichols who also standardized on ABB and BNR. And I find that, I guess, like from personal experience, very peculiar because Again, in food and beverage, at least most of the robots I've seen are Coca and Fanuc, right? And so those are the only, pretty much only, again, I, I put that in air quotes because ABB still has a few machines here and there. But could you walk us through like why ABB, why BNR? And I know you've already mentioned it a little bit, but I, I'm really, again, curious to that very similar structure to uh, to David. Yeah. So um, I'm not getting paid by ABB. I don't get any, I don't get any, you know, any pats on the back or anything, but you know, I, in all seriousness, I think the color of the robot, they're Fords and Chevys. Um, I really do. I, I think that except for when it comes to software and it's the software part of it that, that absolutely 100% drove it for us. Um, having robot studio as a tool, I think, even if you talk to ABB, I used it in ways that other people just never caught on to use it. But every one of my quotes went out with a simulation of the application. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, for me, it was, you know, and maybe it was because I was doing them and like in a quote, I didn't need to show an end of arm tool. Like I can just go over and pick up a product and place a product, right? Like, mm-hmm. like the customer, that's all the customer wants to see. And, and maybe going back to like, you know, Ryan and I laugh about this because what Ryan would do being a high C, he would design the end of arm tool. He would show the suction cups. He would have all the grippers and we'd spend three weeks designing up all this stuff to put it into robot studio. Mm -hmm. 
when they're just going to say, yeah, thanks guys. We don't want that. And I move on to the next person. Right. Mm -hmm. So I always used it as a sales tool. Always every single quote that I had simulation, 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 because it de-risked the whole project overall, because as soon as a customer saw it, they're going to go, Oh, that's it. Yep. That's it. But what are you doing here? No, no, no. That's not what we do. We have to do it this way. And all of a sudden, instead of words on a piece of paper, going out to them, it's a simulation that they can run over and over and over again and see what you're trying to propose to them. And they can tell you that you're doing this right or that right or that wrong. And boy, it sure helped the communication between us and the customer. So going back, you know, you asked why ABB pretty much uh, it's all about robot studio, hundred percent. Like and that software, by the way, like that tool and David mentioned this on stream is free. So you can download it for 30 days, I think as a trial which uh, I, I personally haven't seen with any other vendors. Uh, no, so and, and the things that are in it are crazy. I mean, they have a physics engine built into it to where you can pick boxes and throw them on a conveyor and they'll bounce around and you can guide them and push them. And I mean, that it's phenomenal. I, you know, I, I guess when we in the industry see a tool out there that has made our life easier, we want to tell everybody about it. And I'm just here to tell you that I don't believe we could do what we are doing today without Robot Studio. Like hands down, like like it, it, it's all about that. And how now, does BNR fit the picture? Or, sorry, uh, a, a diff- yeah. So BNR, so um, yeah, they won't like to hear it, but extremely oh. painful, extremely painful. So it was it was a hard hard transition into it. Um, big learning curve to come up to speed. We did use Loop for some of our stuff in the beginning and uh, have now taken it all over ourselves. Um, in the end, we're very, very happy with it. Uh, just the, their motion control, in, in my opinion, is next to you know nobody. They have a really good motion control platform. Um, so yeah, so. When were they acquired by ABB? Sorry to not know this uh, history lesson. Do you know if- that's a recent acquisition. I, I, I'm guessing, but it had to be 2018, right okay. around that time time frame. Yeah, sometime around there. And do you see like a change, I guess, in how they integrate between the two, or was it always good? Or uh, I'm just curious. Oh my gosh! Like the hope was like <laughs> like the hope was ABB. You just got like nobody else has it. A robot manufacturer and a PLC company. Like yep. oh my gosh! Like like that that that's money. And you have a $40 billion a year company acquiring, you know, a PLC company. And I just got to say, it's been tremendously slower than what we hoped for. And they know it, they, they know it as well. But, but the, but the fact is, is it's going to, it's going to come, you know, they're going to integrate them. So, and gosh, I hope that everything gets into robot studio. That would be fantastic. I would say that the number one takeaway of ABB acquiring BNR is that more people know who BNR is. I would say 10 years ago, uh, very few people would know who BNR is. And it would be very much like folks Loop who were committed on this strange, weird motion uh, centric controller because they can do anything they want with it. But it is more difficult, right? You're you're probably not writing your motion in ladder logic. Uh, yeah. which uh, which many other people are. Um, yeah. I, I want to, I think this is a good moment to transition. I'm going to have Vlad uh, play the sound and we're going to go thank some people uh, for this. Vlad? There we go, Dave. Awesome. So we want to thank Siemens for sponsoring the robotics theme. Uh, the technological tasks in modern machines and plants are diverse and often demanding. It's good to know that there's a smart answer to all the challenges regarding motion control, signal acquisition, output, closed-loop PID control, edge computing, artificial intelligence, and machine learning with somatic technology and somatic technology CPUs. Uh, Now, Shane, this part always gets me, uh, but Siemens is a global leader and innovator when it comes to industrial motion control, robotic, simulation applications. Get this. They are one of the world's biggest innovators in technology R&D, spending more than $6.11 billion, big B, U.S. dollars per year, and have maintained that investment even throughout the pandemic. I, I just, I think it's amazing 
Um, I like to joke in the robotics themes. Can you imagine how many robots we could buy for 6.1? Actually, you probably could calculate how many robots we could buy for $6.11 billion. It's a lot of robots, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, and the integrated and scalable cinematic technology automation solutions save you valuable engineering time for simple tasks as well as complex issues and guarantee maximum efficiency and flexibility. This means one engineering framework with TIA portal, one control with cymatic technology CPU, one communications for standard op- automation, uh, safety and motion control with Profinet. Again, we want to thank Siemens for talking about this. And if you guys haven't checked out episode 51, we actually spent basically the entire episode talking about simulation and the, this, well, we've actually talked, spent many episodes talking about simulation because th- this is just one of those things that we like to get into. So we, we spent some time at the end of the year last year talking about digital twin and the digital twin just led us into this whole simulation. We were talking about simulating lines. So outside of just the robots and Max was talking about how we could take an ABB robot or a KUKA or a FANUC or a, or, or kind of any robot and we could drop it in and they simulate the whole line. It's, it's super impressive. Uh, something that I have never done, but I am happy to know that there are people like Max out there who I can call or send an email to saying, Hey Max, I've got this super complex line that I would like to simulate. Um, come help me out. We, 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 so we absolutely agree that simulation is kind of the way forward. And I love the example that you gave kind of that simple, Hey, look, this is a robotic arm. It's the standard robotic arm. And look, it's picking up a package that kind of sort of looks like yours. And look, it's moving the package as you kind of described what it is. But, uh, but with seeing is believing. Uh, and so I would say seeing is believing. And I, I want to touch on the, the communications point that you had earlier, Shane. So I, I think that it's amazing kind of the disk assessment you guys did. And I kind of like the visual representation of the Legos. I, I think that we would almost be negligent if we didn't mention that understanding people's communication styles is important, both not only internally, but also externally. Right. And I think that, I think that simulation example that you gave is great. So for most of us seeing is believing, and there are engineers like Vlad who are going to go want to read through like 150 pages of technical documentation. (laughs) And there are other people that are like, show me like a GIF of a robotic arm moving the thing as I want. I'll be like, I want three of those. And they're going to purchase. So there, there are different people who communicate in different styles and understanding how your clients and customers communicate are going to help you better facilitate that. And for me, that was one of the difficult things as I was going and communicating and talking with other customers. It's like, why does this person not understand the word? I, I could not in any way, shape or form be more clear on the things that I am saying. Why can this person not understand what I'm saying? And again, I think it goes back to, uh, to communication styles, which I, uh, ooh, so I think that that is a very good point uh, that, that you brought up. Uh, now, now we get to ask you, Shane, to go kind of like rub the crystal ball and we're going to ask you to predict the future, right? So you guys at House of Design have gone through some fairly significant changes in the last you know, couple of years, the, the products, the bringing on partners. I, I guess, where do you think the robots or the robotic industry is going to go? Yeah, so um, we're focused on construction. I believe Mm -hmm. construction is going to be a big uh, industry that is going to need a ton of automation. Um, Obviously, uh, there's lots of things to still figure out in that space. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I love the aspect of 3D printing with the robot. Like that's, that's some pretty cool stuff. Um, I do believe that instead of just doing off-site construction, I believe that there'll be lots of on-site type mm-hmm. of construction activities. So, you know, if I just talked about the construction industry, I do, I do see lots of growth in that industry. Um, I think ag is another one that mm-hmm. needs, uh, needs to be automated. And especially with our, you know, our workforce that we have today in the lack yep. of uh, lack of people, you know, to fill jobs. Uh, it's really important. Um, so those type of things um, we could get into a whole episode, um, but I do not <laughs> believe cobots are, are where okay. the future is. Um, but that's just a naive system integrator perspective. So, um, <laughs> um, so I, I love that. I, I would like to actually hold the cobots off for a moment and kind of double down on the construction and ag. So as we've had these conversations, 
uh, basically it, it continues to go to the point of, hey, we've probably automated as well as we can, um, you know, automotive. Automotive, like we automate, we have automated and like we could, in theory, like if people had the money and they wanted to pay us, we could turn to a lights out facility that no human ever had to look and we could automate it because we build cars how we build cars. But I think construction, agricultural, non-standard, non-legacy solutions are some of the most interesting solutions. So before you guys went and did all these products, were you focused on non-standard solutions like construction, like ag, or is, is that kind of something that people found you, like visionaries found you and said, hey, Shane, I, I think we can use robots to go build things. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, and maybe this speaks to a lot of people out there that are system integrators. Look, we would do anything and everything for anybody. Like if you wanted to do uh, the one, with the one caveat, we tried to stay away from palletizing and we tried to stay away from food. So okay. palletizing, like, like. palletizing to me is a commodity. Like it's almost like welding. Like there's, there's good players out there that have great mm -hmm. systems that are pretty much yes. productized. Like I, I just don't see that. It's very cutthroat, low margin. Yeah. Um Food, I spent way too many years of my life in the back of food processing plants. And I never wanted to subject anybody that I knew to that pain and agony of being in the back of a food plant. So too many potatoes, Vlad. Too many potatoes. Yeah, yeah. In 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 all reality, the reason why we say no to food is because mm -hmm. we had a statement of a hundred percent FAT in our facility. Okay. That's that's what we wanted to achieve is 100% factory acceptance test in our facility. With food, mm -hmm. you can't do that. I could never simulate 60,000 trays of, of a food <laughs> product, you know, to run an FAT. You just can't do it. You just can't do yeah. it. So, so then what happens is you spend months and months and months in a factory trying to figure it out. And, and it's just as painful. It's just painful. I would say for personal experience, it wasn't that bad, you know, but uh, yeah, I guess it, I guess it depends what kind of food you're manufacturing, and what kind hey, of the, what the environment looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, so I, I like that. Okay. That, that's interesting. Well, let, let's get into the cobot. So I have been asking, we've been asking many questions about cobots and I will give kind of the brief wrap up. Right. So I know a lot, I guess cobots kind of fall into two categories. One, we're using cobots in place of a normal six axis robotic arm because I don't need the safety shielding and, or I'm going to put it in a smaller space. That is kind of like the most answer that I get of people are using cobots. And two, as David uh, was talking about um, last week, he kind of said, basically, if you give a cobot with a teach pendant to a junior engineer, they're going to go find something in that facility to go ahead and robotize and then they're going to go sell it to their manager and that is kind of the best use case uh, of how can we get the first robot in but th that is a almost diametrically opposed version of the legacy systems integration of we're going to come in we're going to do the the feed test right we're, we're going to go build the cell we're going to go safety we're going to make sure no one dies um and kind of all these things so, so where do you see cobots fitting into into the whole situation? Yeah, so uh, people in I want to just state this is only Shane Dietrich's opinion. Okay, so but a cobot is not safe. Okay, the application is what is safe. So giving it to a junior engineer to go find something to automate. Well, if I took a cobot and I put a razor blade on the end of it. It's no longer a safe application, okay? And so I worry, just inherently worry that people have, and, and the robots are being sold as that, as, hey, mm -hmm. it's a cobot, it's a safe robot. No, 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 yeah. go, look, go look at the ANSI standard. That's not what makes it safe. What makes it safe is the application that is put into. And are there applications out there? Hands down, yeah, absolutely, there are applications. but. In my opinion, I've never gone to a customer and they've never looked me in the eye and said, you know what? I don't care about cycle time. Have it go as slow as it can, but I just want to oh. automate it. <laughs> Every single customer from, from, from my experience is, 
make it go faster, make it go faster. How can I make it go faster? Well, that's inherently conflicting to a cobot. It just is. And when you look at the cost of a cobot as compared to an industrial six axis robot with a laser scanner to make it safe, like I can go twice, three times as fast with the same cost that I'm buying a cobot. So that, that's where I'm at now. Being the type of guy I am, okay, I will tell you, I will be fair, okay? I am very judgmental against it because the distribution model of a cobot is to get rid of system integrators, okay? And that is, whether they want to say that or not, they're going to distributors, distributors go sell to the end user, the end user tries to self-integrate, and if and when they fail, they come back to a system integrator and ask them for the for the, you know, um, the highest risk, lowest value part of our business, going and making a system work, right? That's super hard. Building a frame, gosh, I can give that to any one of my engineers. They'll go build a frame and that's the highest margin part of the project that I have, right? It's it's easy and it's low risk. So I am very, very much uh, uh, biased one way, right? Because of my system integrator background. So I did just say a lot in that, in that little bit, I do feel like I have seen a ton and I'm not joking. I've been in the back of a lot of manufacturing facilities mm -hmm. and I see the cobot just rolled over to the side, <laughs> not working and just people doing the tasks that they were doing machine tending, Gosh, maybe you can get me on board with some machine tending just because it's a uh, low cycle or duty, to, you know, duty cycle on the robot. You know, every three minutes you got to go in and load a part. Okay. You know, but uh, I don't know. General industry. I, I don't see it. So. Sure. As, as a follow-up, uh, I do have a follow-up before I let Dave jump back in. But uh, so in terms of the complexity of programming cobots, right? So again, I mean, I have, like, I've seen how traditional robots are integrated. I've worked on many projects involving, again, six-axis robots. But on the cobot side, I've only seen them at trade shows, again, being sold as the an all-solution. Very easy for, again, as you said, like a junior engineer to kind of just play around with and kind of create the motions that you want. But... It, to me, robotics are extremely complex. Like if you want to have an optimized solution that meets your needs, there's quite a bit of, again, programming and I would say fine tuning, right? Like because it's always in the detail uh, of what an optimized solution looks like. So could you paint us a picture again? What is the level of complexity with cobots? Are they really that kind of simple to integrate like from a real standpoint, right? Like obviously in a very, I would say, controlled environment, right? Like if I put a box in a very tight space, there's zero movement of your conveyor belts, there's zero, you know, vibration going on, your arm is always moving from A to B. Like I, I understand that it's probably easy, but from a true world, like manufacturing environment, how easy is it for someone with zero robotic, again, because I think junior, like when you say like junior engineer, usually it's not someone who's extremely focused on robotics. It's probably like a mechanical or electrical background. How easy is it for them to put that in? Okay, so let's let's define the two questions. Mm -hmm. How easy is a cobot to program? Easy, yeah. easy. Dude, I, I could teach my son to program it. Everybody out there that has a cobot mm -hmm. has made it super easy to program a cobot. Second question, how easy is it to integrate a cobot? Extremely difficult. So you guys understand that, that programming a robot to come over and pick up a part and to place a part. My gosh, guys, that's motion. Everybody's made that super easy. I turn an IO, an IO on here and off there and it's local IO and it's super easy to be able to do that. When I have to have that cobot interact with other IO, with other systems, with other machinery, over different communications, my gosh, Vlad, that's that's where things fall apart, right? And then to your point, optimization. Look, again, it comes back down to cycle time. Like I have never, ever, not once had a customer tell me, I don't care about cycle time. I just want to go slow. I just haven't, 
you know? And so when I'm in the code in ABB Robot Studio, look guys, I'm, I'm trying to pull milliseconds out of each pick and place. I'm trying to pull, if I pull five milliseconds out of this, you know, one and a half second cycle over the course of a day, that's a huge amount of cycles that I get back, right? Yeah, it could mean the and, difference between two robot arms or a single one, right? Or yeah. that application. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are my thoughts. I don't know if that helps, but but that's kind of how I think of, of the world a little I, bit. I still remain optimistic, you know, but again, I have not seen a robot just being kind of dropped on the production floor and someone very well integrated on their own. So I like I'm optimistic, but yeah. I remain skeptical of if, until I see it, right? So I, I've I'm seen one. I've seen one application that I saw a cobot used in a awesome way. Three people. This person did something, passed it to this person. This person did something and passed it to this person. They took the center person out and had yeah. the cobot just do that. And what it did is it paced the production line. So it actually made the production line constant and it yeah. got rid of chit chatting between the three people. Is that, is that the best place? Well, uh, I don't know. I leave that to you. leave that to you guys. Dave, what are your thoughts? I, uh, I, I, I take on a Shane's uh, initial point, worry about the safety of cobots, Mo- mostly yeah. because I only get one chance, uh, one life in this game that we're, uh, we're, we're currently playing. And I worry about robotic arms flying around. I think that as we all get older in industry, we watch what we stick our heads under um, to make sure it's not under, you know, a, a heavy door or something that's going to move. And so I, I, to some extent, worry about all robots. I feel like cobots without some of the safety, I mean, you can stick anything you want on there. And if it's a junior engineer teaching with a teach pendant, I don't particularly know. So I, I am probably very you know, bearish. I'm certainly not bullish on the safety factor of at least myself personally. And if I'm not going to subjugate myself to it personally, I'm not sure I would put other people working on the floor doing it in the same. But I've always had this opinion of I'm not quite sure that I feel like the safety of cobots is where they need to be, despite the fact that cobots have exploded in popularity, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So so that they have certainly exploded in popularity. They will probably continue to explode in popularity because they're cheap. But I, again, I feel like you only have to have one or two accidents that people get seriously injured or die before we completely rethink it. And I hope no one dies. I hope we can get through the, the safety concerns. Well, maybe mostly Dave's safety concerns than, uh, than anything else. But I, I, think that, I think that it's interesting. Um, I would also say to kind of uh, to Shane's point, for as many times as I've seen good robotic applications, I've seen applications that were integrated by people who said they could do it, but had never touched a simulator or a robot before. And they're like, yeah, let's go charge half a million dollars to do these four or five cells. And then I've seen companies spend $25 million trying to fix the robotic cells that were, were using robots for reasons we shouldn't. There, there was one where they were trying to drill and cut pieces of metal at the at the very end of the effector without a good table underneath and it was bending the metal it was it was i know people that spent two years of their life at that facility trying to get the robots to run after the initial company that went to integrate it went bankrupt because it just it was such a poor project and no one did vendor assessments but vendor assessments and can my systems integrator actually build a robotic cell is a topic for another time, yeah. uh, but uh, but no, Shane. So so thank you for uh, for everything. Um, we do have a, we do have a couple of questions. The questions that we ask uh, everyone, and I feel like you're in a unique perspective to uh, to answer some of them. Uh, so we always like to hear career advice. Do you have some advice for pre- people looking to get into integration, or maybe looking to build products, or maybe looking to get into robotics? I, I do. So I would say uh, believe in yourself. Is a, is a big one and hire people that fill in the things you're not good at. So if you, if you actually step back and you try to take the ego off the shoulder and like set it aside, you know what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go hire somebody to do what you're not good at. 
because it will accelerate your company immensely when you actually take the ego and put it aside and try to hire people that, that can help you just in the things that you're not good at. So know your weaknesses for sure. That is important advice. It is also maybe the hardest advice anyone will ever give because it's very difficult to look at yourself in the mirror and be able to say out loud what you're not good at and then go try to hire people who don't look like you, but to fill those gaps. So I I think that's very good advice. Maybe the most difficult advice we'll ever get that, uh, that that will be to, uh, to follow, but that, that is very good. Um, Dave, I will figure out our accounting just to be (laughs) self-learning a lot of the accounting practices on the side. Hire somebody somebody to do it, Vlad. Yep. See, see, that's what, that's what I continue to tell Vlad, but Vlad has this really ugly Excel spreadsheet that he likes to keep. (laughs) We all have, we all have, and let me tell you, engineer Excel spreadsheets are not financial Excel spreadsheets. Thank you. Oh, this this has just been the best 12 seconds of my entire week. Thank you. Thank I'm you not for, ready uh, to give up yet, time. but uh, I will. I got consider. a guy. His name is Tim. I was texting with him last week. He's a great account. You're more than welcome to his information. What When you get there, Flat. Uh, but, but no, so Shane, I, I like to joke that this is our hashtag not sponsored audible section where I ask you if you've got some book or other content information and then Vlad goes spends his weekly um, his weekly audible credits. <laughs> yeah, so um, I read a book a while ago. It was told to me the science of energy. I really yeah. liked that book. It was a great book, good read. Um, and uh, yeah, Do you know who's so it that, by? Who's the author? Uh, boy, the author. Oh. I don't know. You're gonna have to look okay. it up. Sounds good. It good. is by uh, Michael Weissen. Weissen. Uh, we will go ahead and post links gotcha. on there. All the um, links, by the way, yeah. in, that we've discussed will be in the show notes and the description for yes. this video. Perfect. Yes, especially because we as a podcast are terrible at enunciating last names. But no, <laughs> that is perfect. Uh, that, that, is, that is perfect. Thank you very much for that, Shane. And then uh, last question for you is, is who should reach out? Uh, who do you want to talk to? Wait, I thought there was a second book. Dave, there was a, there's a second book. Well, okay. it, it's kind of a little bit political, but not not bad. But lessons from the edge, Marie uh, Yovanovitch. If you if you want to mm-hmm. read something about Ukraine, just a just an interesting book there. So lessons from the edge. Perfect. Thank you, Shane. Perfect. Yep. Yes. Th- thank you for that, Shane. And then, then the last question uh, for you, Shane, today is who who do you want to talk to? Who should reach out? Um, who are you looking to help? Who are you looking for help for, from? Yeah. Uh, so look, we're hiring uh, a huge amount of people. I ask if you're a, uh, a headhunter, we're not interested. We got enough people to help us find people. But those of you out there that, that love automation, like I got to tell mm-hmm. you, House of Design, we're in it deep in the software side. Uh, robotic system engineers, mechanical engineers, um, control PLC engineers. Programmers. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, PLC programmers. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'll bite, oh, bite, my, t- bite my tongue that, on that, that one. That bite my tongue on that one. But yes, PLC ah, programmers. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're oh. just trying to trying to grow and grow rapidly. Um, we have figured out that you know remote working uh, does does happen, and the pandemic has kind of helped us figure out. You know, we can. We can't do that. So, so apply house of design. So the website is www.thehouseofdesign.com. And if you're listening to this, we'll have again, all the, uh, the links on uh, both our website, the show notes, as well as the description for the video in case you're yeah. again, driving or, you know, on a jog and maybe <laughs> difficult to access, but yes, we'll have all of those posted. Shane, I'm curious, you know, on that last comment in terms of remote work. So, I really hope that the automation industry provides like more tools, I would say for engineers. And again, I think, you know, BNR is a very different platform that allows you to program slightly differently that uses a bit more of, uh, again, like version control and you can remotely program fairly well. But uh, in traditional PLC controls, I think we still have a lot of ways to go before I think it's as easy. 
what, what are your thoughts again, like on remote work? Have you been able to make it work? I think you, you said that you did. But- oh, I do. Uh, look, mechanical engineering, great. We have great success and, and stories to tell. Uh, one of our, one of our great engineers, she lives back East and she's, she's been doing phenomenal with that. Um, but, you know, unfortunately I do have to say that, you know, like our robot system engineers, like you can't get away from actually being on the equipment, on the system, looking at how the end of arm tool interacts with the product and how it picks and places and optimizes. That's not, that's not going to go away, but you sure can do a lot of simulation work from home and then come in once or twice a week to be able to do the other stuff. Gotcha. That makes my, R, my, my RSCs are probably looking at me right now going, yeah, bull crap. That's a lot. <laughs> but in theory, that's what it should work. So. Perfect. No. So I think that that, that is interesting. Shane, th- thank you so much. I think that this has been an amazing conversation. I will say that we will have to commit either towards the end of this year or some point, maybe 10, 12 months from now, we'd love to get you back on to, to kind of re go through this process, right? You guys are in this huge upswing would be very interesting to know how the huge explosive growth, the 250,000 square feet of build out and, and the productization productization of the uh, robotic sales go, but no, uh, thank you so much. Shane. it has been an amazing con. Perfect. It has been an amazing conversation. Um, And and again, everyone, uh, thank you for listening. I will, for the second time this month, ask everyone, if you've made it this far, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button or throw us a couple of likes. Uh, Please go. You can rate us on what? Apple Podcasts and Spotify and and Audible. For the two people who listen to this that uh, listen on Audible, that always helps. Uh, Shane, we like to joke, like lots of people joke that they don't know why it helps the algorithm. I like to say we could tell you why it helps the algorithm, but this is not that show. And we'll probably never make that show because I'm not sure any of us like math that much. Um, But no. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Shane. We will catch everyone on the live show again uh, next Wednesday, as on every Wednesday, and we'll catch you in your ears on the podcast on Thursday mornings. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Shane. Really appreciate it. Thank you.